I've appreciated the responses, reaction of so many of you to the message last week, Christ in all of the Bible, and I really want to build on that again this morning, <clears throat> and a number of you have asked if that was videoed, and I find out that yes, all of the 915 services are videoed, so if you'd like to get a video of Christ, the theme of all of Scripture last week, you can, you can do that by signing up for it in the back. Uh, if you weren't here last week, not because I preached it, I would encourage you to get it, because uh, that singular understanding has impacted my understanding of Scripture more all these years than any other thing I've ever uh, been introduced to. And I, as I did last week, I gave the credit for that outline to Dr. Norman Geisler, who was a former teacher of mine, and uh, just really um, was blessed by that little book and that outline. I see a lot of you fanning yourselves. Is it warm in here? Very warm. Hey, we want, we want it to be chilled down a little because I don't want anybody going to sleep on me this morning. So whoever's back there controlling the thermostat, would you please turn it down a bit? I, I just can't get this deflatable Santa Claus out of my mind over here. Have you seen him yet? Right on this back street, we pulled in this morning, he's deflated. He's flat face down on the ground. I have watched the neighbors this week. I don't know if they, they probably won't hear this, I hope, but I've watched the neighbors. They've, they've pumped him up, and uh, you'll come by 15 minutes later, he's down. I mean, I would have given up on Santa Claus long before this. But perhaps you've seen that email that's floating around, the, the, the contrast between Jesus and Santa Claus. I won't bore you with that this morning, but it's kind of an interesting email that's going around. I, I'd like to add one to it. You know, Santa Claus, you've got to keep inflating him. But Jesus keeps us inflated all year long. And uh, so anyway, you've you got to drive by the street and just see. Now, he may be pumped back up by the time you go out. I don't know. But uh, boy, I've seen him... Uh, standing up about eight feet tall, and then I've seen him fat, flat down on his face, and that's where he happens to be this morning. A familiar essay written anonymously says this of Jesus Christ. Nineteen long centuries, now it's twenty, have come and gone, and today he is yet the centerpiece of human history, the leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that were ever assembled, all of the kings and parliaments that have ever met, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. What a tribute to Christ. The late Wilbur Smith, respected Bible scholar of a generation ago, wrote these words. He said, the latest edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica gives 20,000 words to this person, Jesus, and does not even uh, hint that he did not exist. More words, by the way, than are given to Aristotle, Alexander, Cicero, Julius Caesar, or Napoleon Bonaparte. George Buttrick says, Jesus gave history a new beginning in every land, he is at home. His birthday is kept across the world. His death day has set a gallows against every city skyline. Even Napoleon, that great French general, said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. One of the most intriguing things about Jesus is the prophecies that deal with his coming 
back in especially the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, if you were here last week, you understand that there are seven major sections of Scripture, and they all speak of Him. Jesus said, uh, Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Luke 24, verse 27, during that time with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Paul, at the end of Acts chapter 28, here he is, he is under house arrest, but for everyone who came, it says that he began to speak and teach them about Jesus from the prophets, from, rather from the book of the law, the books of Moses, and the prophets, so that twofold division of the Old Testament. So, it's only right that this morning we would be focusing upon Jesus in all of the Bible, because, as I said last week, you simply cannot miss him. It's all about him. And the first five books of the Old Testament are the foundation for the coming of Christ. They lay the foundation, man's sin, the need for a Redeemer to come. Then the next 12 books are the historical books, Joshua through the book of Esther, and that lays the, is the preparation, the failure of the human kings, the failure of the judges, the failure of the kings. There's got to be a Redeemer who will come. Then you have the poetical books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. There's the aspiration, the desire, the longing for God to manifest himself and to be seen as he ultimately did in the person of Jesus at the incarnation. And then you have the prophetic books, and they are 17 in number, five major prophets, major because of the scope and magnitude of their vision, and then you have the minor prophets that go all the way through the end, the book of Malachi. Now, if you're not familiar with your Bible, I want you to turn to the prophet Daniel. Daniel is one of the five major prophets, and the reason why he is a major prophet is because of the length and breadth of the vision that Daniel covers. Daniel lived at least 5th century. He lived from 605 B.C. down to 536 B.C. Daniel, without question, is the one who wrote this great prophecy. Think of it, over 500 years before Christ came, Daniel has a lot to say about who this Jesus is. And he is writing and recording his dreams and visions that had as their immediate audience Gentile kings under whom he served. He was living and prophesying in a day much not unlike our own day. It was a day of relentless pressure to cave into secularism, to secular society. And of course, we remember the story of how King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 had this great image that was built unto himself out in the plains of Dura. And it was, it was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And it was commanded that everyone in his kingdom would bow down and worship that great image to Nebuchadnezzar. But you remember there were three who refused to worship and bow down, and they were brought before the king. And when the king commanded them at the sound of the musicians to bow down and worship this image, what did they say? King, uh, we don't have to answer you in this matter, but we do know this. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us, but if not, let it be known to you, we're not going to bow down and worship your image. We're not going to worship your gods. And the end result was they were cast into a burning, flaming furnace, a kiln, where they made brick. And uh, uh, archaeologists tell us, which is interesting, everything that archaeology uncovers just confirms the authenticity, 
the veracity of the Word of God. They tell us that the kilns that were built back in that day in order to produce bricks were actually large enough for men to be able to be walking in them or working in them. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into that burning, flaming, scorching heat. And it was so intense that the men who cast them into the furnace, it says that they were lapped up by the flames. But the king a little later looks in and what does he see? He sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And lo and behold, he sees a fourth person. And he says, it's like unto a son of the gods. It's literally what it means in Hebrew. He didn't know what he was seeing. You know what he was seeing? He was seeing a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. That Jesus Christ was there in the midst of that intense fire, walking with Abednego, Shadrach, and Meshach because they refused to bow down to the pressures of their age. I'll tell you what, if we as the people of God refuse to bow down to the pressures of secular society today and we do not worship the gods of this age, that is the gods of secularism, the gods of sex, the gods of materialism, of pornography, the gods of drugs and power and money, if we simply will not bow down and worship at their shrine, we can be sure that Jesus, the Son of God, is going to go with us. He's going to be right there in the midst of that fire. In fact, Isaiah chapter 43 tells us that God says, you are my people, you are a special people. And he goes on to assure them, fear not, for I have redeemed you. You are my own. I will walk with you. When you go through the waters, they will not overflow you. And through the rivers, they will not overcome you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Neither will the flames scorch you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That whatever you're going through in your life, whatever you've been through this past year, whatever God has for you in the new year, Jesus will go with you. In fact, he said it is great commission. You go and make disciples of all the nations. And here's the last word I want you to know. I am with you always. I'm always there with you, even to the end of the age. Now, he may not keep you from going through the fires, but he will walk with you through the fire. He may not keep you from going through the fires of this life, but he will keep you from the fires of the judgment that is yet to come. I had an interesting experience a couple months ago when Connie and I were out in Tucson with my sister and her husband, and he has a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, so wherever he goes, uh, he likes to stop at a Harley-Davidson shop. So we accommodate him, we stop at a Harley-Davidson shop, and I, I love to look at Harley-Davidson motorcycles. I have no interest in getting one. I'm not planning on getting one, but I just kind of like to look at these shiny, sleek bikes. And I'm there looking at one of these bikes, and one that I thought really had some it just was a very attractive bike, if there's such a thing as an attractive bike. And I'm standing there looking at it when, sure enough, salesman comes walking over and uh, began to engage me in conversation. And, and, and it wasn't too long into the conversation. I don't know why he did this. It's not a good thing to do if you are a salesman. But he said, you know, um, I had a friend that has a Harley Davidson. He's traveled all over the country two weeks ago right here in Tucson. He was killed on his cycle. Now, why would, a, why would a salesman bring that up? I don't know. And uh, my comeback, now this had to be of the Lord because it, it, I'm not smart enough to think of this, but my comeback was, you know, I would not get on one of these things if I did not know where I was going to spend eternity. And he looked at me and he said, well, I know where I'm going. And I thought, man, it's great, a believer. It's not ashamed to admit it. And I said, well, how do you know where you're going? 
He said, because I've had a lot of people tell me over the years. <laughs> now, that was a quick comeback. I said, but you know, you really can know where you're going and was able to share the gospel with him. Now, I'm not always that bold with people I know and people I'm going to see, you know, from here on out. But I'll tell you what, when you know you've got one shot with a person, you'll never see him again. Why not give him the whole load? I mean, just do it. And it could be that somebody else has already been witnessing to him and he just needed to be kind of hit with a truck. I mean, that's what we really ought to be doing. You can't do that with people you know and your relatives. You may even have relatives here with you this morning. You can't come on that strong. But the great news is, because of Jesus, we can know where we are going to spend eternity. And what I want you to really see this morning, I just want you to see how elevated and exalted Jesus, the Son of God, is. He is so unique as I mentioned at the very beginning of this message. He is unique. There's no other like him. He was prophesied hundreds of years. I mean, even the most liberal biblical critics have to admit that Daniel had to be written at least several hundred years before Christ. You simply cannot deny the facts. So, what are the facts telling us? Well, uh, certainly they teach us the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. In fact, in Daniel 1 through 6, it's primarily all in narrative form. You have narrative form, and they simply bear witness of, of the sovereignty and control of God over all of the governors, all over the kings, all of the governments of the world. I mean, God is sovereign. And He doesn't allow anything to come into your life that's not part of his plan for you, that ultimately he will be glorified through whatever he brings into your life, and you're going to look back in eternity and say, man, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. You'll see how perfect his plan is. And you can't miss that as you study Daniel. And as I mentioned, the first six chapters are primarily narrative. And then chapters 7 through 12 give us a series of prophetic revelations. And what I want you to notice in these prophetic revelations is we have these snapshots of Christ. I mean, 500 years at least before Christ came, we have these pictures. See, in the Old Testament, we have pictures of Jesus. In the New Testament, we have the presence of Jesus. But wonderful pictures. For example, you cannot miss Daniel in a number of places refers to Jesus in one way or another. Uh, let me give you an example that I already did in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, one like a son of the gods, we now know it was the son of God himself, Jesus, who was present with them in the burning furnace. Uh, another one would be in Daniel chapter 7, where you have this wonderful overview of, of this whole present age, all these Gentile powers, right up until the second coming of Christ. And then it says, Behold, while I was looking, while I was looking, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a dominion and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And of his dominion there shall be no end. Of his kingdom it shall never be destroyed. That's what Daniel foresees, this son of man coming to the ancient of days at the end of, of history. You can't miss Jesus there. 
you can't miss Jesus in so many places. He, he is even the ancient of days, as referred to in Daniel chapter 7, and we know the fulfillment of that's in Revelation chapter 1, where we have the same description of him. But I want to focus primarily on two ways in which Jesus is revealed by Daniel the prophet. The first one comes in chapter 2. So if you'll turn with me to chapter 2, and I want to read verses 34 and 35. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. Now here's this great vision that's been given to Nebuchadnezzar. It was a dream that occurred. I'll say more about that in a moment. But at the very end of this, when Daniel interprets it, verse 34, he's saying to the king, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image of its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The Jesus that we celebrate here, the Jesus whose incarnation we celebrate is this great stone that was cut without the mountain. Now what happens in Daniel chapter 2 is that King Nebuchadnezzar, who had so recently been raised to the position of world ruler, was anxiously thinking about all of his newly acquired possessions when God revealed to him in a dream a prophetic outline of the future history of the world right up until the second coming of Christ. If you understand Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, as well as Daniel chapter 9 that we'll look at in a few moments, you really understand history past as well as history that has yet to be lived out. It, these are incredible prophecies that the book of Revelation, Jesus' uh, Mount of Olives discourse in Matthew chapter 24 are based on these prophetic revelations in Daniel. It's sort of the foundation of all of prophecy. And it was given, as I said, at least 500 years before Christ. And this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon, they had recently taken into captivity Daniel and many others, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as long as a lot of their contemporaries, uh, as well as a lot of their contemporaries, they had taken them from Jerusalem and Judea and had taken them over into Babylon, and they're now in captivity, and that's the setting for this book. That the people of Israel are now dominated by the Gentile nations, and they will be right up until the second coming of Christ. You see, if we understand that, then we understand the tensions in the Middle East. We understand most of the problems that, uh, that we have today based on international tensions. If we understand what's here in these verses... Now, Daniel had a similar vision about 50 years later, and that vision is given in Daniel chapter 7. So I want to tie these together. I, I want to tell you right up front that uh, you're going to have to think with me this morning. I had some folks last night say, man, I really appreciate that, but you stretched me, okay? What you probably will want to do is get the tape so you can go back over this. But listen as well as you can, and I'll try to make this as clear as I can. Uh, the, the king has this great dream in chapter 2 and verse 1. The second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Now, where do you think was the source of these dreams? It was God. You again see the sovereignty of God. God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. His spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Now, there were two problems with this dream. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar the next morning couldn't remember the dream. 
And number two, if you couldn't remember it, you can't get an interpretation of it. Have you ever been there, done that? You know, you've had a dream, you think, man, I've got to remember that dream. I'll, I'll dream a dream like that, and I'll think, I've got to tell Connie first thing in the morning, or I'll forget it. And if I tell her right away, I remember it. If I don't, I forget it. I had a dream, in fact, it was while I was working on this message. I had a dream that I had just finished medical school. Now, I have no desire to be a doctor. But I just finished medical school, and I'm on my first case, and I've got a medical doctor that's kind of overwatching everything I'm doing. And I get the stethoscope out, and I put it up next to the man's heart, and I start listening, and I'm thinking, what am I listening for? I don't remember anything I learned in med school. Nothing was coming to my mind. And I was very frustrated in this dream, and I'm letting on like I know what I'm doing, and I'm thinking, I don't, I don't have any idea what I'm listening for. And then I put the man down on the table, and I begin to poke around in his stomach, and I just had an exam prior to that, and that's probably why the dream came. But poking around his stomach, and I thought, what am I poking for? What, what am I trying to feel? I don't, I don't know what, anything about this. And, and it was so frustrating to me. Now, I remember it. I don't know what the interpretation of it is, but <laughs> the king had a dream. Now, here's God's sovereignty. Understand this. He had a dream. And that dream, he, uh, he could not recall and he called all of the astrologers and all of the wise men and all of the soothsayers and, and all of the psychics in the kingdom to come together and to give him not only the interpretation but the dream. I've got to remember this dream. See, God's hand in all of this. Only one was given the privilege of knowing what the dream was as well as the interpretation. That was Daniel. Oh, see God's hand in that. Just as you can see God's hand in everything that he allows to come into your life today. And... and uh, Daniel was able to recall. He was able to also interpret. You know, I get so frustrated today when I see all the confidence that's put in these soothsayers and psychics, and, and they'll be on a program, and they'll have a call-in program, and they want to know, well, what's your name? Why don't they know what the person's name is? <laughs> Why do they have to ask the name if they're that smart? See, Daniel, God was way ahead of all the psychics and all of the soothsayers of his day. He gives the dream. And what the king saw in this dream were four kingdoms. Okay, Babylon was the first great Gentile power following Assyria. It's now Babylon that's there. And he sees four great world powers in the form of this great image that Nebuchadnezzar had of this man. And, and uh, the various parts of the body from the head downward to the feet represent a, a coming world power. For example, the head was made of fine gold and it represented Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And that was in existence at the time that Daniel wrote this book, as I've already mentioned. And, and then came the chest of arms and silver. And, and the chest of arms and silver would represent Medo-Persia. And we have, a, we have a reference to that at the end of Daniel chapter 6 when Medo-Persia took over the kingdom. The end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, it's now Darius, the Mede, who is the reigning emperor. And then came the, uh, the belly and the sides of bronze, and that would be Greece. That would be the next world power that would be in existence from 33 B.C. on down through 63 B.C. under Alexander the Great, if you've seen the movie Alexander the Great. I understand I haven't seen it, but it's all about that, the times of Alexander. Now Daniel sees this, you see, several hundred years before the event. And then finally, the fourth, be, uh, the fourth uh, part of that vision would be the legs of iron and the legs of brass. 
and, uh, and feet of clay, which would obviously represent Rome, 63 B.C. until several hundred years after Christ. It was the power in existence at the time Christ made his first appearance. And his disciples were hopeful, and, and all of uh, Israel was hopeful at that time that he would be the Messiah who would bring about ultimate deliverance and break the yoke of the Roman bondage and the Roman emperors. But we know Jesus, and obviously the Father, had a far greater plan that would include our eternal redemption. Now notice, though, the, ballet, rather the legs of iron and the feet of clay, and on those feet were ten toes. Ten toes are mentioned in verse 42 of our text here this morning of Daniel chapter 2. And uh, the world is yet to see these ten toes. Now, we've seen the legs of iron and, and feet of clay. The feet of clay represent Rome being divided after the time of Christ, 364 B.C. Uh, it was divided in two. So we now have east and west, and we're still influenced by the east and west thinking today. You have eastern Greek Orthodox, you have the eastern church, you have the western church. Rome was divided. But what the world has not seen are these ten toes, because the ten toes represent the future. The ten toes represent the last great form of Gentile world power, and it will be under the auspices and authority of the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the last great Gentile ruler who will be in existence at the time that Christ appears. And what Daniel sees in this vision, well, actually the king saw it, but Daniel's interpreting it for him, is that this great stone that's cut out of the mountain at the very end of the age is going to smash those ten toes Daniel chapter 7, it's ten horns. We have four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. The parallel, Daniel chapter 2. You have, for example, the first beast is the lion, and the second beast is the bear, and the third beast is the leopard, and the fourth beast, Daniel says, it's just something dreadful and terrible that has teeth like iron, and it has, uh, it has fangs like brass. And it's a very destructive form of government. That's the Roman government. And then he sees this last form being ten horns or ten kings. Ten horns in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, and these ten horns or ten toes represent ten kings at the end of this age. Will they be over the present area of Europe, the European common market, with the seat of authority of the Antichrist being in Rome? That's one possible scenario. Or it could be that it will be ten different worldwide jurisdictions that are sort of broken up into and form one world government and then they will make the Antichrist the last Gentile ruler who will be very much like Nebuchadnezzar who will have an image built unto himself and will demand that all people worship him. That's in Revelation chapter 13. That's something we do not know. But here's the important news. Back to Daniel chapter 2 verses 34 and 35. And the interpretation comes in verses 43 through 45 is that this great stone, that's Jesus, he's this great stone, the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. This great stone that's not cut with human hands is going to come down and smash, literally smash all the Gentile powers at the end of this age. That, that's the Jesus that we serve. He's the ultimate ruler, the ultimate authority. And of course, this all ties in with the message of the angel to sort of get us back to this Christmas theme. Luke chapter 1 and verse 30 through 33, where the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, Mary, uh, do not be afraid, for you're going to give birth to a child, and that child will be a son, and they'll call his name Jesus, and he'll be great. 
And he will rule over the house of Jacob and over the, over the family of David. And of his kingdom, there's going to be no end. It's going to continue forever. That was the message given to the angel, by the angel to Mary. And, and then you have that wonderful time when Jesus is appearing with his disciples in Acts chapter 1 during those 40 days, and he's teaching them things concerning the kingdom of God. And he's proving himself to be alive by many infallible proofs. That's how Luke the physician puts it in Acts chapter 1. And then the disciples come to him and they have a question. Acts 1 and verse 4. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you loose us? Will you free us from the Gentile powers that have a hold over us? Jesus said it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority but you will receive power. Acts 1 and verse 8. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. And folks, that's what we're to be doing today. As we sang moments ago, go tell it on the mount. We ought to be shouting that message every opportunity we have. Jesus is what is the one who gives us hope in the midst of a hopeless world that seems to be becoming more hopeless with each increasing year. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is the coming Messiah, the anointed ruler. And that's over in Acts chapter 9, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 9. So if you'll turn there, and we're going to wrap all this up, Daniel chapter 9. Are you still with me? Following me? Okay, Daniel chapter 9. What happens is they're in captivity. This is uh, the time of their exile. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had learned from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25, that 70 years were determined, that that's how long they were going to remain in Babylon and they were going to be under Gentile power. And the Jews would be banished from their own land. Well, God gives Daniel another vision after he's confessing the sins of his people in the opening verses of Daniel chapter 9. God, through Daniel, says it's not just 70 years, it's 70 times 7 years. Now, I'm going to make this as simple as I know how. And uh, I want to read these verses, and then I'm just going to give you an overview of what these verses are saying. Daniel chapter 9, here the message comes through Daniel the prophet that it's going to be 70 times 7 years or 490 years. Seven times seven is 49. Seventy times seven would be 490 years. And here's what happens after those 40, 483 years, the first 69 weeks. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks, and literally in the Hebrew it's heptads of years, meaning 70 times seven, are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Boy, just reading these gets me excited. Because this is all going to happen at His second coming. To seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the Most Holy One when Israel recognizes Jesus to be their Messiah, just like Joseph's brothers recognized Joseph in Genesis chapter 45. Jesus, at His second coming, will reveal Himself to His brothers and they will anoint Him. Now, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Let me just give you the date on that, 445 B.C. That's when the command went to go and to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Until Messiah the Prince, you can't miss him here, Messiah the Prince, the ruler, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, that's 69 weeks, that's 483 years because these are heptads of years. The street shall be rebuilt again and the wall, that's the subject of Nehemiah. 
The uh, temple would have been, uh, would, would have been uh, Ezra. The, the walls were Nehemiah. That's what those books are all about. Notice it will be rebuilt even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, that's after the 62 and 7 weeks or 69 weeks or 483 years, here's what will happen. The Messiah shall be cut off. Now, I've had a number of folks say, you know, I've got Jewish friends that I'd like to be able to share Christ with. This is a key passage, by the way, Isaiah 53 and uh, Daniel chapter 9, to use with a Jewish friend to show them that Jesus was the Messiah. They cannot conceive that their Messiah that was long promised to make Israel, to fulfill all the promises to Israel, would somehow be crucified. We heard a lot about that this last year when the Passion film was out and how so many of the Jewish people responded. Well, it's right here in their own scriptures that the Messiah would be cut off, not elevated and exalted at that moment in history, but he would be cut off. And the Hebrew word here, karath. I can tell you back when we were in Israel, one of our trips to Israel, that there, our guide, I, I was trying to look for opportunities to share Christ with our guide and, and to engage in conversations regarding the Old Testament scriptures. And our bus driver at that time, uh, I asked him, I said, easy, tell me, what does the Hebrew word karath mean? He said, oh, it means a very violent kind of death. It could be a beheading. That's not uncommon in the Middle East today, as you know. It could be a beheading. It could be something that's unheard of, that's not even known in Daniel. So, ooh, isn't that interesting? Because crucifixion was not practiced at that early time in history. But it says the Messiah would be cut off. He would be violently put to death by some bizarre means of death. But notice, it would not be for himself. It would not be for himself. Meaning it would be for us, for the people. And the people of the prince who is to come, notice this follows his being cut off, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now that's what happened 40 years after Christ. The city and the sanctuary were destroyed. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24 says that moment is coming and that's why he wept over the city of Jerusalem because he could foresee it coming. And the Bible says that, that as, they're, as they're looking at this great temple, the disciples are there with him and this, this prompts the Mount of Olives discourse in Matthew chapter 24. As they're looking at this great temple, Jesus said, don't, don't marvel at this. There's coming a day when not one stone, these were massive stones, weighing two tons at least each, not one stone's going to be left standing upon another till all these things be fulfilled. They said, Master, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Three questions. And Jesus went on to answer each of those questions in Matthew chapter 24. But I want you to see, and I've mentioned this before, how his prophecy was literally fulfilled 40 years after his crucifixion and resurrection. He fulfilled his ministry as a prophet. During this present age, he is our great high priest, is interceding for us. He's coming at the end of this age to be our king and to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. But he, his, prophe, his prophecy was true because they tell us that when Titus and the Roman armies came in to destroy the city and the temple, there were, Josephus says, over a million Jews that were part of that slaughter. Imagine that. 
And that last final siege against the city. And they burned the city and they burned this huge temple and all the gold in the temple. The heat was so incredibly intense that it melted all the gold in the temple and the the gold now in liquid form runs down through all of the cracks of the stones. And in order for the Romans to confiscate the gold, they had to disassemble every stone so that Jesus' words, which would have been almost unthinkable to predict that there's coming a day not one stone would be left standing upon another. All of his words were fulfilled. Now notice it says, the people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come means he would be of Roman origin. He hasn't yet come. But it's the people of the prince that destroyed the city. That would be the Romans. It shall be with a flood, meaning um, it will be as a, as a flood. They'll come down on the land. We know how quickly floods can destroy and how destructive they can be in our own, our own part of the world here. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. In other words, right up through the end of this age, you're going to continue to have wars and rumors of wars. Jesus himself said that in Matthew chapter 24. That's what this whole present age is about. Until the last form of Gentile power, ten kings, ten horns, whatever you want to call them, there are ten kingdoms, and they will give their ultimate authority and allegiance to the Antichrist. Now, What I want you to notice in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Verses 25 and 26. I'm just going to make this real simple this morning, and that is this. You can begin with 445 B.C. when Artaxerxes the king issued the command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and take it right up to 31 A.D. where most put the crucifixion of Christ, and you have precisely 483 years. Many believe even to the very day Messiah was cut off. Now, now how in the world could man ever come up with this? What does it do? It gives us a sense of credibility in the Word of God, that, that the Word of God is a book you can live by. Forget about the Da Vinci Code and all of these attempts by the critics to destroy and undermine the Word of God. This is the Word of God, and it will be fulfilled. And you can use it as a guide for your life and understand that what the Bible says about your eternal destiny is true. And and I feel like I need to say that because there's just so much criticism and undermining of Scripture today. But let the Scripture read for itself. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Now one jot or one tittle shall be destroyed until all of these words are fulfilled. You can count on it. It is true. Precisely that moment that Daniel foresaw, 500 plus years before Christ, exactly how long, and he could see this whole scenario of Gentile powers and Jesus the Messiah coming and being cut off at at the exact time. And notice Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, a verse that just comes to my mind where it says that that, uh, when the fullness of the time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law in order that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of the time was come, God's Son came the first time. When the fullness of time has come and the Gentiles, the times of the Gentiles have run their course, God's Son will come again. Jesus said, or the angel said in Acts 1, just as you've seen him go, he's been taken up into the heavens. In like manner, he shall come again. Arnold Toynbee, the great historian in his monumental work of, called The Study of History, devotes one entire chapter to the subject of saviors. He breaks them down into four categories, the savior with a scepter, the savior who, who is uh, 
the political savior. We put a lot of stock in politicians in our country being able to change things. There's the savior with the book, the philosopher, the teacher, the theologian. The savior with the sword, he's the military type. The mythological saviors, the Roman, Greek, and Norse gods commemorated by their many statutes. Then he mentions that each of these saviors ultimately capitulates to the great enemy, death. Politicians, kings, military leaders, philosophers, and the demigods all die. They all succumb to the same enemy. Then he concludes this significant chapter with these words. When the last civilization shall have come to the river of death, there on the other side, filling the whole horizon with himself, will be the Savior, the one and only Savior. In the minds of this great, mind of this great historian, there's only one Savior who's qualified to save because he conquered death. And all of these incredible prophecies in the Old Testament, by the way, I can tell you that that's probably the main reason I'm in the ministry today. One of the reasons is because when I was in high school and I was studying the prophets, I began to see this book is of God. This book is of God. It does not originate with man. Now, until that moment when Jesus Christ comes again, what does he want from my life? Well, he wants, first of all, he wants me to know how much he loves me and that he wants a relationship with me. He wants one of intimacy with me. And he wants to reign in my heart until the moment he comes back and reigns over all of mankind. He wants to reign in my heart. And if he's reigning in my heart, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is going to be produced, which is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance. Against such there's no law. He wants to change us. That's his interest. He wants to make us like himself, recreate us in his image. What an incredible image it is. And that's what the journey in life is all about. The Bible is a love story written from God's heart to man. And it's centered in the person of Jesus, who is the theme of all of Scripture. I want us to bow our heads together in prayer. It might be that you are here this morning and there's never been a moment in your life when you've responded to Jesus Christ as just opening your heart to him and saying, Lord Jesus, I realize my sin and the reason you came was to die in my place. And you were resurrected from the dead to prove that you are the one and only Savior, the Messiah, the ruler, Israel's Messiah, but the world's Savior. And this morning I open my heart to you and submit my life to you. You might be a family member, a friend, colleague, co-worker, someone who's here by, because you have a friend or a family member that invited you to come. But you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. And maybe your heart's door is open this morning. It may not always be open. And I would encourage you just to open your heart, let Jesus come in. He has great plans for you, plans for good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. He'll do great things in your life. He'll give you meaning. He'll give you hope. He'll give you a passion for living, a reason for living. And I would encourage you this morning to open up your heart to him. We will have prayer teams available at the end of the service. Down here in the front, they have blue badges on. Just come down and tell one of them that you'd like to talk with them. You'd like to have them pray with you. Father, thank you for such a great Savior.
And I pray that we'll have a a new appreciation for him this morning, a new appreciation for the word. It's not the word that saves us. It's the Savior of the word. It's the one whom the word is all about. 